Do you think was West living? Was he living in one of the Confederate monuments? <laughs> they might have pulled it over with him, with him inside, <laughs> bro- broadcasting from Lee Circle. <laughs> <laughs> the insurgents are upon us. <laughs> This episode of uh, Attica Shrugged, the uh, podcast where we talk about um, things concerning the South or the news this week. So let's do a quick introduction. I'm uh, West Cheek. Uh, I am from Destin, Florida. I now live in New Orleans, Louisiana. That is my brief introduction, maybe more later. So with me today is also David Dykes. Uh, yeah, I'm from Rockford, Tennessee. And I currently live in San Miguel de Allende, Mexico. So you're a real southerner. Uh, very far south, the deep, deep south. The deep, the deepest. Um, and also Chad Watson. Yes, I am from Tazewell, Tennessee, in the shadow of the pinnacle. And I now teach math in Houston, Texas. You mean the the pinnacle of American prosperity? <laughs> the pinnacle of American prosperity. <laughs> Cumberland Gap <laughs> Historical <laughs> Park. Right, right. Because it's the coal economy is keeping us afloat. <laughs> yeah. By that I mean it's uh, melting the ice caps and raising the water table so we can't, our houses are floating. It's really Florida away. that it's keeping afloat, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's Florida, yeah. No, that's the aquifer. That's Wikiwachi Springs. And people afloat. that work at the uh, office of Black Lung, the Black Lung Management Office, keeping them afloat. I, so I'm actually undecided about whether that's a real place or not. The black uh, lung? <laughs> or Flo- no, Florida. <laughs> <laughs> no, is, is there actually a black lung management office? Because I imagine there would be. There is a black lung. I, I don't know if it's like a federal government, but um, there is an office of black lung management um, that we had. Uh, well, we had, like, there was a, like, I met, we met a kid once. So there was a camper that his parents worked for the office of black lung management. Wow. See, I'm against that because if they're not also going to do white lung management, I think that's reverse discrimination. <laughs> yeah. For the so why not? Since we're yeah yeah since since we're doing this, I'll say briefly. So we've talked about doing this podcast for a while about a lot of stuff, and then over the last few months after the election, there's been a lot of kind of ridiculous think pieces that have been out there uh, from like we should detach America from the South. Because that would make us like smarter and less racist, uh, like Chicago and Boston and places like that. Or conversely, we should should all yeah detach Mm -hmm. the South from the country so that we don't have to put up with all the liberalism and um, having a black president. I guess. Right. Right. Or yeah, you know, yeah, the reverse. We should move. We should move somewhere. We should move into a holler somewhere and uh, treat everything there as the gospel, which I think are both equally bad takes. So I've been, you know, saying we should talk about this stuff. And then uh, while all that's going on, there's a lot of stuff going on with that. There's also been this podcast, S-Town, that came out. And everywhere I've kind of gone, I've heard people recommend it to me. And then, David, you told me it has, I believe, 16 million downloads now. Is that right? Or has it gone up by a million since last time? 
Oh, I, I haven't even looked in a while since right. I sent that uh, number to you. Yeah, so we thought it might be a good place to start to talk about that podcast. So that's what our episode today is going to be about. But before we do that, um, just because this is maybe the first time some of you guys are hearing us, uh, even though Chad and I have wildly successful terrestrial radio shows before this <laughs> podcast, and David often talked on his front porch for whoever would show up and listen, uh, you might not know us. So do you want to do like brief introductions kind of just to, to, to say uh, who we are? And uh, David, I'll let you go first. We'll go by height and go go from there. Okay. I um, well, I said before I'm from Rockford, Tennessee. I went to University of Tennessee, and I went to uh, what used to be Southwest Texas State, and is now just plain old Texas State. But I um, uh, I've studied poetry and literature, and I've been a teacher for most of my life. I spent a lot of my life here in San Miguel, in Mexico. Uh, as a teacher for, um, I guess, about ages 6 through, or, or um, uh, grades 6 through 12. And then I've taught at uh, University of New Orleans, uh, Southwest Texas as a grad student, and um, UT, University of Tennessee, not UT, Texas. Um, and All right, you're hired. You're hired. Uh, you're hired. Uh, okay, since we're going by height, uh, I'll go next because I'm totally high right now. Uh, that's not true. Um, so, yeah, I'm Wes. I, I'm i from Destin, Florida, which is the South, even though it might not look at it if you're, like look like it if you're staying there on vacation. Uh, I went to uh, University of Alabama, although I also went to Virginia Commonwealth University for a year, so I totally did the undergraduate South. Um, then I taught junior high school for 10 years in Japan. Uh, which has nothing to do with anything. And now I'm at Tulane University uh, getting my Ph.D. in urban sociology, which is totally boring. And now I teach college students who are totally boring. Uh, that's me. So, Chad? I grew up in uh, close to the Cumberland Gap, which is where Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia all converge. Uh, I lived there until the uh, ripe age of 18, where I went to the University of Tennessee, just right down the road, an uh, hour and a half, and I have uh, degrees in English and math, and I went to San Francisco for two years uh, and was a math tutor, and then I came back to Tennessee, and I taught math, and I worked for a grant uh, called the Appalachian Collaborative Center for Learning, Assessment, and Instruction in Mathematics. And I've, that's the most exciting thing we're going to hear about tonight. Yeah, I'm that's sure. the most exciting thing you're going to hear about tonight. And I've taught high school and junior high ever since. After I left the grant, uh, I taught junior high and high school. And right now, I teach at a predominant. I teach at a minor, minority majority high school. It's about forty five percent Latino, forty five percent African American, five uh, percent. Filipino and Vietnamese and then 5% other and I teach yeah I teach math there I'm tired of those others taking over our country yep so so yeah so we were going to like do the first block of this show talking about like since we're going to be talking about southern issues talking about like what constitutes the south and what means the south but while we were kind of planning for that uh, this week suddenly here in New Orleans where I live um they finally started fulfilling a years-long promise uh, to take down 
the Confederate monuments. And I kind of thought of this as a very local story when it when it started happening two nights ago. Um, I thought, oh, that that's nice. They're finally doing that. And I thought maybe there would be a piece in The Advocate <clears throat> or something. And then, then all of a sudden it was uh, national news and every, every racist on Twitter was really excited about it. So I thought we should take a few minutes to talk about this issue of the Confederate monuments uh, all over the South and New Orleans in particular, but either, either way. So the one that came down the other night was a Liberty Place Monument, which is kind of the most explicitly white supremacist mo- monument I can think of, because it, it kind of says that on, on the monument. It specifies it on the monument. So just kind of in general, do you guys have any kind of comments on this? This is, has gone down this week, or the Confederate monuments in general? Well, the one that they took down the other night is, it's not even a Confederate monument. It, it's a monument to... Uh, an uprising post-Civil War um, where the white people took New Orleans back over after from the Reconstruction forces. So it's not even pretending to be a Confederate monument. It's a plain old straight-up white supremacist monument. And um, yeah, you can, yeah, you kind of pick up on that for the fact that it says this is a monument to white supremacy kind of engraved in stone on it. Yeah. And then the others, the, the, you know, there's a Lee at Lee Circle, and I guess they're taking down Beauregard, and I'm not sure what the other, is there another one? What's the other one they're taking down? Um, there's another one. Uh, which one is it? I don't know. But there's still, there's controversy about uh, Jackson as well, whether Andrew Jackson will come down. And I, I think that's the most, that's the one that will end up being most problematic. Yeah. Well, partly because the others are explicitly raised by white supremacists to glorify right. the Confederacy in the Civil War. And to me, what's, what's most, maybe not what's most interesting, but maybe most telling is all these people want to say that we need to remember history and that these monuments are about um, remembering history, but they're really about being a proponent for one side of history, which is the wrong side. Sure. And, like, you know, the argument against them has been, or against taking them down has been, this has been an undemocratic process to take them down, to which my response is generally, if you think this is an undemocratic <laughs> process, you should have seen, like, how they went up. It wasn't like, you know, there was a poll of, you know, a majority African-American city to see if they wanted monuments to the Confederacy. Uh, they were explicitly raised to kind of um, reinforce the idea of segregation forever. Right, and this comes from, I guess it was in uh, May of last year, the Houston Houston ISD renamed seven of their schools that were all had, um, like, uh, Civil War, uh, Confederate, they all had Confederate, na- they all had Confederate heroes uh, names and they renamed the seven and those are pretty controversial um, pretty much much yelling and screaming and uh, saying it was not not for that it should be that we should remember Jefferson Davis and and these for all the good and, things he did. For all yeah, the good things great. he did, yeah. yeah, for his yeah for his lovely mansion that's two blocks <laughs> behind my house, uh, which is nice. Uh, it's a nice mansion. But you know, I was just gonna hear. I I uh, 
t- took some photos of the um, the commentary we've had. Like so, the the Nola dot com, the the what used to be the once great Times Picayune, which has become Nola dot com. Uh, their comment section is already notoriously horrible, uh, but it's kind of exploded over the last few days. So uh, we have a guy who goes with the name Rick Cajun on there, which I'm sure is his actual name, uh, which says that he's, he's, he's really upset because these monuments were bringing attention and awareness to American veterans. Uh, and then there's this whole kind of uh, school of argument which is where they kind of take some internet meme that they've heard and turn it into a historical fact that everyone else is ignorant of so he says stupid liberals are taught that uh, they aren't taught that over one million freed slaves died in union custody or that Lincoln wanted to deport every black black to quote him to British colonies learn my stupid friend it will set you free and he also goes on to say that all the so-called freed slaves came back to the plantation. He actually says our plantation, which is interesting. <laughs> came back to our plantation and asked for help and not let their families die in the Freedmen's Bureau. Uh, so, yeah, and there's, there's more. There's, um, there's uh, a lady named Audrey who says that, uh, well, it's wrong on both sides. You don't tear a monument down. You learn from it. Yeah. So we're unwilling to learn on both sides. Well, that's a pretty uh, common part of contemporary dialogue is to say, if there's two sides, then they must both be equally right. Right. Like, I mean, uh, slaves and slaveholders are, I mean, people who kidnap people and enslave them and force them to labor for them for free. That's one side. That's one side. The other side is being kidnapped and made to work for free so that someone else can live in a giant plantation home. You don't know what that's like. But also, I do have to say that Jefferson Davis High School was renamed Rick Cajun High School. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to see Rick Cajun is finally getting his due. But as a history teacher, really, is uh, where he he made his, his impression. Mm-hmm. Well, what if it turns out Rick Cajun's like a real guy and he lives in upstate New York? Because you know, he has the, the unfortunate name Rick Cajun. He took a specific interest in southeast Louisiana and just kind of chimes in. <laughs> just, look, guys, I just thought I should let you know. I mean, read no on this stuff. Yeah. We, also, we also have uh, Christine says, I cannot believe this is happening. Hashtag liberals destroy everything. Like burning books, taking what Katrina didn't, which is, which is odd because Katrina took like black neighborhoods and unimaginable amounts. But anyway, uh, the storm of a city whose underbelly of her people prance vile, repulsive around and call it art, call it freedom of expression. And those who allow them to take over may find they've unearthed their own voodoo curse. <laughs> <laughs> she's hit all. She's hit all the New Orleans hot spots. She's oh. got Katrina, our prancing underbelly, and our our voodoo curses. But uh, she also goes on to say, "A very sad sight in a city I've loved, but will think twice before spending my tourist dollars there as freely." <laughs> I saw because that in a few places where people were saying, "I'm not yeah. going to spend my tourist dollars there anymore," which I would scoff yeah. at, except that you know, having lived for years in New Orleans, I saw what the tourists were like. And I imagine that uh, a lot of them are from the pro-Civil War or pro-Confederacy demographic, judging by what I saw when I lived there. No, I will say I, w- I, I, uh, I was in a cafe 
uh, doing some homework, and there was a, I heard a whole conversation between this couple who had been on a tour, and they were so upset because the tour guide had kept pointing out uh, the the in, where the enslaved people lived in in the homes they were visiting, and they were like, "Oh, I didn't want to you know know about that on a tour, which is like the majority of housing on a plantation." But anyway. But that's all right. They cannot spend their money here. I think we'll, I mean, like, <laughs> New Orleans is going to get poorer. Well, and also, th- there's still plenty of dentists from the Midwest to have their conventions there and um, uh, sure. all the rest of the big groups that come in for um, uh, uh, the Nookie. Yeah, and yeah, the Super, definitely. Super Bowl. And the Super Bowl. I don't think the Super Bowl is going to keep any. I don't think the racists are like the 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 pull of the Super Bowl will not make their their racist conscience be able to drive them away. Uh, what, one other thing I was going to add, just like you know, my master's in historic preservation, and you know, there's cases all over the city of historic African American homes being bulldozed, and even neighborhoods being bulldozed. And you know, it goes without saying, none of these people show up to say how upset they are about history being ignored. Oh yeah. So, so there's that. So I think they're pining away for history rings a bit hollow. Yeah, and so uh, I guess that our consensus is that taking down Confederate monuments is a good thing. Do, do they, have they decided well, I, what they're going to do with them yet? Uh, well, I, I've decided. Uh, I have a strategy. So I think what should be done is that Mayor Landrew should... Uh, get behind a podium, have a press conference, and say that all the guys in Orleans Parish with monster trucks and winches say that they can pull the monuments down before all the guys out in Plaquemines Parish and Jefferson Parish and Tangipahoe and uh, out in Thibodeau uh, can pull them down because out out in those parishes they have weak trucks with bad winches (laughs) and... uh, then just say, just yell, go, and step back from the podium. <laughs> and I think within two hours, every monument in New Orleans will be gone. Gone. True. Every gone. single, not just, just the Confederate one. So it's no, every, one. Yeah, no, every monument. It's like Simone Bolivar, <laughs> he's down. <laughs> no, every lamppost will be down. <laughs> but it'll be awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's where, yeah, that's where the redneck part of me gets really excited. It's like, well, that would actually be really fun. Like, I would, like, set up my, uh, like, jazz fest chairs on the street to watch that happen. But I would wear a helmet. All right. So, yeah, I think, I think we're in a pretty safe campus, and Confederate monuments are dumb. Um, I don't think that's that complicated. And it's not that hard to say. I don't understand why we have to be convoluted about it and say, oh, that's a complicated issue. It's not. Uh, the other alternative I've heard, I will credit my friend Mark with this, is that they should hire contractors to hollow them out and fill them up with candy. And <laughs> just you, uh, give everybody sticks. Yeah, get a baseball bats and sticks and just go to it. That'd be fun, too. They're probably um, already hollow. All right. <clears throat> they probably, yeah, uh, metaphorically. So let's get into this uh, if we're going to talk about it. So. Uh, I don't know, was it like a few weeks ago, a week ago, this this podcast from the people who put together Serial in This American Life called S-Town came out. And I missed out on all of the hype for this. I did not hear any of the hype. All I heard was you, David, saying it was good, and our friend Katie saying it was good. And I was like, well, 
since I sit in an office all day, I'll check it out. And once I started listening to it, I went through the whole thing in about two days. Uh, and I, everywhere I've gone since, and I've heard people talking about, and I've wanted to talk about it. So we thought it'd be good for this kind of first podcast we're putting it out to talk about it. So let me just ask you guys here. Uh, I mean, I'm just guessing from what we've talked about previously that you liked it, but let me just kind of get your thoughts on it. So why don't we start with Chad? What, what were your kind of thoughts on it? Well, first, my initial thought, when I heard about it, uh, I really liked Serial, uh, season one. Uh, season two of Serial, I was kind of lukewarm on. So, like, S-Town, I was not... I didn't really... Yeah, I didn't really catch... I didn't really automatically go and download it and listen to it. But then I heard David talk about it, Katie talk about it, uh, and then I you know, saw the buzz about it and I downloaded it and I listened to it all in two and a half days and I thought it was great. And And just to be clear, you were not that big on season two of Serial because you really were rooting for (laughs) Al-Qaeda. That's right. I am very, I am pro, I just want to say, um, pro Al-Qaeda. No, I think season two of Serial, I felt like I knew everything. I felt like I knew, I'd already read like I felt like I knew most of the inf- most of the big information about about the story. I felt like I already knew, so I didn't feel like I was. Well, it's your fault for being informed. <laughs> yeah, that's my that's my fault for reading up on it. Yeah, I didn't feel. Mm-hmm. I thought it was good, but I didn't. I didn't feel like I learned anything new because I had actually kept up with the story. Um, and like I really hated it at first, but then going back, I was like, well, I I just I hate it because I actually know most of the story about it. Uh, but So, D- David, what were your kind of basic thoughts on, on uh, S-Town? Well, I didn't... I came to it... I guess I just heard some promos for it, and I really liked This American Life most of the time, and uh, I liked both serial uh, seasons uh, pretty well, especially the first one more so than the second, but I liked the second one a lot, too. I didn't know the story so well. So I started listening, and... Um, you know the 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 main guy, um, John B, is just such a compelling voice. He has so much energy, and he's you know he's a character, not in the literary sense, but in the the uh, sort of social sense of just being somebody who you don't quite know what to expect from next. And uh, when he when it started out. I'm going to start immediately with spoilers, so anybody who doesn't want to hear any spoilers spoilers. shouldn't shouldn't listen. So I actually uh, didn't listen to it, so, you know, go ahead. Yeah, how does does John B., is he okay? (laughs) He's all right. Yeah, he gets all his stuff all right, right? (laughs) Well, it, it starts out, and early on, the narrator tells us that um, somebody else dies. That is not the murder victim that you think it's going to be, but somebody else dies. And I hear John B. talking about this guy who he thinks has murdered somebody. And whether he did it or not, the way that he talks about the guy and his family, I thought it's got to be John B. who dies. Because otherwise you couldn't broadcast this. It's slander. You know, he'd be sued. He'd be... um, uh, it just seemed to me like he couldn't have said the things that he said uh, if he was still going to be around and be accountable. And sure enough, um, 
so John B. kills himself. And it turns into this sort of meditation and exploration of John B. and what happens with his legacy and one thing and another. But I love the fact that it was driven by that voice and also by that personality even after he's gone from the story by the end of the second episode. And that it just reveals layer after layer of his personal story and how he fits into his community and what the nature of his community is. And uh, I've said before that it, it works a lot like a good novel in that uh, it's complex. It's about complex relationships. Yeah, I just thought it was a great podcast. So I missed out on all of the hype for it, and I didn't even realize it was by the people who did Serial or This American Life. All that, that became apparent once I heard like the narration style and the editing style. But so I had no expectations uh, going into it, which I think helped me a little bit because I didn't expect there to be any mystery. Um, and, you know, the first episode kind of goes in with this idea that there's a murder to be solved. And I was mildly interested in that. But when that didn't pan out, I wasn't disappointed because I didn't expect uh, anything out of it. So to me, it was just uh, it started off being very compelling because I felt like all of these I'm saying characters, but they're real people within driving distance of where I am right now. All, all of these characters were people that seemed so familiar to me. Uh, from different stages of my life. And then kind of as the murder mystery faded out and it became a character study, they were more and more familiar until increasingly by the last episode, uh, I was I was very sentimental about them, but by them, you know, by proxy to people in, in my family or people in my hometown or people I'm around that I thought these are, these are people that I know. Uh, and I think maybe you guys also felt that way. Oh, very much so, yeah. Very much. Those were all... I mean, even though I didn't know anyone like John B., I mean, I knew John B. type... I mean, John B. eccentric characters that were not... that were maybe a bit out of place in Taswell. <laughs> you don't say. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I think that um, uh, to a certain degree, a lot of us were that character... You know, not as extreme, and also w- the difference being mostly that we left the town that we came from, and now when we go back to those towns, we come back not exactly on our own terms because you never get to completely set the terms for going home, but um, we come back with the kind of power that you get from having been able to walk away, and I think uh, that John didn't, that that he lacked that, but aside from that, not fitting in. And the fact that he he felt like his uh, uh, sort of uh, proper milieu within his community, it's not like his community didn't have middle-class people leading completely average, uninteresting American lives, sitting around watching TV every evening, going to some sort of uh, uh, secretary or management job in the daytime and um, uh, watching American Family at night or whatever. And he chose to spend time with the eccentrics, the outsiders, and the uh, working class people and bikers and uh, uh, the people who were outcasts within their own community who maybe had less opportunity than John B. did to leave. 
talk about real slander. You you just allege that I could do trigonometry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not Captain Jack Aubrey, David. You you're, you could do the equivalent of trig- trigonometry. Uh, no, um, no, but I, yeah, I think that that's part partly it. But I, you know, I didn't identify with John B as much as I did, like just like know that guy from when I was younger, and that, and it's kind of been clear to me lately that these these people who I thought when I was a kid were kind of these these crazy eccentric weirdos, I've come to realize them now. There were people who just stuck around instead of leaving, even though they didn't fit in. They just kind of dug in and said, well, so what? And uh, and did that. I can think of ones from my, from my childhood, like this, the guy who called the games at the ballpark, uh, who was great and would let us come sit sit upstairs at the ballpark around the microphone and would let us sit there while he called the game or the guy who would show up to every city council or, uh, yeah, city council meeting and um, yell at everyone on the city council about everything they were doing wrong and they would lock him out of the building and he would run around and pound on the window so they let him in. And it, I was always told when I was younger he's a weirdo, but now it's just like, no, he just didn't didn't play along with the rules of the town. Uh, but the good part about that was that no one really penalized him for it besides thinking he was an eccentric, right? Well, I think, yeah, being a weirdo and not playing along or in small towns is often the same thing, and that often you don't get punished for that in in the ways that, um, that it happens in the movies anyway. I mean, there's right. a, a price that's paid, like John B.'s price that he pays of uh, isolation and uh, frustration, but it's not like they necessarily come and burn a cross on your lawn. Right. Yeah, Chad, you were going to say something about that? Oh, no. I mean, I was, I was going to say, I guess I said originally that there is, um, that John B. is a character, that it's, he's too weird for the town, but I think maybe to kind of reflect what, maybe he, he, what am I trying to say? That he, I mean, that he's not, I mean, every town has, he's not, he's not too weird for the town. Like, there is, there are those characters that don't, um, that they're very smart and very eccentric, and they act like they want to leave, but then part of them doesn't want to leave. Um, And I think that... Well, sure, if you leave, you kind of lose your eccentric status, right? right? If you leave and go away, you might be a a sort of smart guy somewhere else, right? Right. And then if you go to the, the city... Right then, maybe you still kind of seem like a like a weird country dude. They can kind of smell it on you, and even if you are smart and can do these things, like maybe it's maybe it's better to be the eccentric smart guy at home than the sort of smart weirdo in the city. Right, which is always a dilemma. Um, not that I know anything about it. So uh, I want to talk. Well, let's look at some the other. I guess the other major character is Tyler, right? And he seems familiar to me in kind of a different way. And I think all of us, having worked as teachers, I definitely feel like I know that kid for sure. I feel like I feel like I've had that kid, uh, and and one of the biggest lessons I realized is, as a teacher is that you couldn't save like every kid who seemed like they they had a shot at being 
a good at it working out, and it doesn't always work out. And Tyler seems like one of those guys who's right there on the edge of it, working out or not. Uh, and so he seemed like like someone I had run into numerous times. Yeah, he's um, definitely. Um, well, I think that that uh, John B has his relationship to him is um, um, he's the only he's the only person John B's trying to save, except possibly himself, but I think not even really himself. And he has resources and money and time and one thing and another, so he can certainly pour a lot into this guy, who is he seems like. Um, as good a guy as he can be, given where he's coming from and and uh, kind of who he is, he doesn't seem especially bright, but he doesn't seem dumb either. He um, uh, doesn't seem especially bound by the idea of being of operating within the law, like he's uh, uh, sort of sometimes operating out of emotion and sometimes operating out of his idea of a kind of higher law, that he wants justice, and justice is right. he wants uh, his inheritance, he wants uh, what is his, um, uh, what John B. wanted him to have. Because it, it sort of degenerates, uh, the plot at the end degenerates more into fighting over an inheritance, which is... Um, uh, a tough plot to make interesting because... Uh, <laughs> but also the most southern of plots. Well, yeah. Uh, what was it? What, Especially when it involves land. What was the Robert Altman movie about um, uh, mm -hmm. Cookie's Fortune? Uh, it sort of turns into Cookie's Fortune. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say Popeye, but... <laughs> Everything's Popeye to you. Mash? I was going to turn into <laughs> Mash. It turned a lot into It was mash. all resolved with yeah, a football I, game. Well, it's funny you mentioned like Tyler's sense <laughs> yeah. of justice because I I felt a little bit like when I was hearing his frustration with it, he handles things so much like I probably would or definitely like my dad would, where it's like, well, no one's helping me out with this, so I'm just gonna go take stuff and tell them to fuck off and see what they can do about it. And it turns out what they can do about it is call the police on you and get you hauled off <laughs> and get you in court. Yeah, and no one saw that coming. Okay. Get you convicted of a yeah. felony. Yeah. Right. It turns out, like, yeah, the solutions <laughs> that seem the best to you are not always the best. When you, like, grow up in a town that's not incorporated, all of a sudden it does, and you, yeah, you can't be guilty of a felony. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like my dad, uh, when the neighbors got on his nerves, deciding he was just going to crank up the chainsaw every morning. It's, like, it's not actually a solution. Well, we started uh, out talking about the um, Confederate stuff, and there's this kind of mm -hmm. anti-federalism in the South that mm -hmm. also is connected to just an anti-authority thing, which is interesting because it goes hand-in-hand hand with an absolute worship of authority. But especially for yeah, exactly. working-class people, there's a lot of the idea that the law shouldn't be involved in the way that we resolve things between ourselves. And that anybody who brings the law in is some kind of pussy. Um, right. Except when you absolutely right. need it and you've been wrong, then any authority you can call on is completely justified. Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> it's kind of like, I think, uh, so I know I've tried to get you to read. Did you finally read Kai Erickson's Everything in Its Path, which I think we should talk about at some point? Yeah, I just, actually, I just finished that when I moved. 
I kind of misplaced it, and I was halfway through uh-huh. it, and I picked it up uh, and just finished it last week, actually. And he does a great job of laying out the combination of fierce independence and right. um, resentment at not being taken care of that you find in Appalachian people. Yeah, and he's speaking specifically about Appalachia, but it seems so familiar to me. He was saying, like, you people operate at these poles where the one is that you're completely independent and hate all authority. But if any bit of your context goes awry, if anything breaks down, then you're completely and totally dependent on, like, whatever authority is out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and where you reject all help until you can't help yourself, and then you're just, like, supplicant before whoever can throw you a bone. Everybody gets a check. <laughs> but you're owed the check. You deserve it. Well, I've been thinking about that because I've been listening to all the coal miners in the news talking about um, their uh, pensions that were promised by the coal companies and guaranteed by the government. Now all the coal companies are going out of business, and um, they want the government to uh, to follow through on their guarantee. And they're saying, you know, that was sweat money. Uh, I worked I worked hard every day for that, often with the implication that other people who get a check from the government yeah, don't, don't deserve hard. it in any way or don't work hard. or uh, Right. Know. Chad, a lot of people up in your neck of the woods uh, get a check. Oh, yeah. All kinds of checks. Black lung checks. Um the uh, a lot of people from the factory that got hurt at the factory at the well I'm not going to say the factory but um, some <laughs> of the factories uh, medical products they make med- medical packaging like it's um, uh, they make kits like kits for operating room like when I guess it's a sterile oh, I thought you meant talking cars I'm sorry it's a sterile uh, it's a sterile packet of you know everything you need for surgery. Um, and that's one of the Could main. Could you see if you can get your hands on a couple of those for me when you're? When you're <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. You do a little Mexican surgery. <laughs> well, the fa- the the factory where I live in the U.S. Is, they make uh, mop heads and rope, and so I'll uh, trade you some mop heads and rope for uh, surgical packaging. Welcome to our anarcho-capitalist uh, podcast. That'll work. That'll work. Uh, I'll try. No, I- yeah, this is something, though, I think, I feel, we were talking about the South being more diverse than we than we give it credit for sometimes. Like, I feel this is very much, I don't want to make it sound bad, but I hear this more in Appalachia than I do in Florida. Not that people in Florida don't get checks, but we don't kind of have, I think it's probably because we don't have factories as much and don't have, like, the mines as much. Um, but what we do have is, like, government contracts and everyone essentially lives on squatted out government land. They just have chosen to forget that over the two generations since it's been squatted out. Um, they just made it somehow. Yeah, yeah you don't they really get a disability check from um, a disability acquired selling timeshares. <laughs> no, no, although you should, a mental disability. But you get, uh, but you do get like, you know, you squat out, your your great-grandfather squatted out like land on a white sand beach on the Gulf of Mexico before anybody wanted to live there and then got it for free written over from the government and then three generations later it's worth $2 million and you sell it and you're a self-made man. Yeah. Well, and that's Which all over always, the West too. 
the, mm. you know, the government completely subsidized the settling of the West, and yet the people there claim to have had no help from the government at all, which kind of makes you wonder why the Indians turned it over so freely. Um, if um, there wasn't a U.S. Army there uh, committing genocide. Well, I think it's because uh, their pants were sagging too much. <laughs> they yeah. just pulled their pants up and stopped listening to all that uh, rap music. Um, so one thing I want to talk about is is uh, the host of the show, Brian Reed. Brian Reed. So who I think did a very good job. He made a very good story, a very good podcast. I think I like him a lot. Um, but part of this seemed to me like uh, at times... Uh, it's just to me because I went to University of Alabama and lived in Alabama. Part of the time when he was talking about initially going to Alabama and sometimes when he's there, he seems like such the character of the bumbling outsider. And I think part of that was he honestly was. I think part of that he probably knows how to play that very well on the radio to make a good radio show. Um, and, you know, also in ethnography, sorry to sound like a sociologist for a second, like being the outsider is valuable in doing research, right? But um, sometimes it came across as humorous to me, but I kind of understood what was going on. But with him being the outsider, but it also started to make Alabama seem like a very foreign place to me, which was odd, but also true. But it seemed like he could have set it up just as easily saying, I'm going you know, I'm going within an hour and a half drive of space camp um, next to one of the largest universities in the South and 30 minutes away from a giant mall and the leading like sports medicine center in America, uh, as opposed to I'm going off into the middle of nowhere. When, in fact, this whole Woodstock, the whole place you're talking about is an interstate exit between Tuscaloosa and Birmingham. And, like, I used to drive it whenever I wanted to go to the movie theater. I'd have to drive from Tuscaloosa to the big movie theater in Birmingham. I'd drive past Woodstock. It's next. It's pretty near the uh, Mercedes-Benz factory. So I just wanted to talk about that a little bit, the idea of him as an outsider and the idea of Alabama as a foreign place. Well, if you want to talk about the, you know, the presentation of Alabama, to him, it probably seemed more like a, a backwater, um, and it's kind of hard to make the argument um, that it's not a backwater when your argument is, when I wanted to go to a big movie theater, I had to drive <laughs> all the way to Birmingham. <laughs> and uh, uh, Exposed. Uh, <laughs> But, but yeah, I mean, to, certainly to us. But I think he, he approached it as an outsider, but what was his alternative? Um, if he was going to tell this particular story, like how could he include all the stuff? Like the guy with Feed Me tattooed on his stomach. If he was going in as a strictly uh, a journalist to, in a very no-nonsense way telling this story, that guy wasn't really very important to the story. But for him to get a sense of the place, and also I think that um, it's part of the job of the narrator to stand in for their most uh, sort of outsider listener, their most naive listener, to, so that they're exploring it in a way that um, uh, doesn't exclude the listener who has no idea what they're talking about, because he might be a more sophisticated person when it comes to the different types of people in the world than he seems to be. But as part of his role as a narrator and as an interviewer to ask the questions 
that um, uh, somebody from the Bronx who's never left the Bronx might have about somebody from Fort Apache, the Bronx. Never left yeah. <laughs> right. But maybe what you're saying is uh, in a lot of the um, think pieces about how all the Trump voters are now getting their comeuppance uh, because Trump's doing them wrong now that they voted for him. Like uh, this picture is painted of a of like an alien of just basically a gigantic trailer park right. somewhere and and like and that's kind of how like really like if you listen to the story you just have you have John B's house and John B's estate and then you have the um, what's it the South park. Forty you know South Forty trailer park across the street and that's like the that's the universe. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you need much more than that, but that's kind of the way it's portrayed is that you have this gigantic piece of property and then you have this trailer park right across the street. So Yeah, and it do, that does leave out all the people who come home from their uh, job and working at the university in <laughs> Tuscaloosa in uh, management or whatever and watch Modern Family on TV every night and all those people who definitely live there too and uh, you know keep their little square yards and oh yeah sure house. I know people who com- uh, commute commute from that area to Tuscaloosa or to the Mercedes-Benz factory or to Birmingham I know people who live near there who uh, work on the computer and internet commute and have uh, really nice paying jobs and live there because it's super cheap to live in rural Alabama. But it, it's interesting too, it's kind of set up, now that you mention it with John B. across from the trailer park, it's kind of set up where the class divides there are like John B., the feudal lord, and then you have kind of the, 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 the subjects, the feudal subjects, and all like the bourgeoisie is kind of excluded, all like the managerial class. We don't really see them. They're kind of anonymous, except for like the lady who works at the city office, who's just kind of friendly and the cousins who come in. Yeah, the cousins, and they're like kind of villains, right? It's kind of like that's the kind of villainy. It's just kind of creeping in of like normal society. It's kind of creep in and start messing with anything. (laughs) Like we're gonna we're gonna show up and we're gonna be normal, and that's gonna fuck up everything that you've got going on. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean you have the uh, you have the gigantic house like that has the the hedge maze with sixty four <laughs> permutations, and then you have the trailer park across the street with a guy who has a bullet oh, in his head that can't that be guy. removed. That guy. <laughs> I also know that guy. I think um, like literally. I do. Yeah, I I I've I worked. I used to, I used to uh, work in the or used to work in the backer fields mm-hmm. with that guy. I, I had a relative who that would be their contribution James. to the conversation. And they were great. I love them, but they had I think eaten a box of lye when they were a child, and and so <laughs> their contribution to the conversation would just be yep, <laughs> yep, yep. And anytime abortion came up, they would just say that's murder, and then the conversation would go on. <laughs> and that was kind of just the way it went. Uh, uh, but yeah, no, I did, and yeah, I'm thinking about that more about it now, where it is this kind of like just encroaching of the really boring bourgeois world is the kind of the real enemy. And the speaking of which, there's there's the, the encroachment of the bourgeois dog. The bourgeois world is kind of the enemy in the story. Yelling at a dog is a, it doesn't get yeah, much I think, more yeah. than that. <laughs> yeah, get I think on in here, hound dog puppy. <laughs> 
Get on in here. So, Mouse, you had something to say about it? No. <laughs> So, you need a comfortable sleep? <laughs> Try Casper Mattress. Blue Apron <laughs> sends you expensive food that you have to make. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, I'm sure somebody on the street would buy her off you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did I tell you somebody tried to sell me a dog that looked just like her the other day? <laughs> Was it her? They just take her out of your house? <laughs> There were two little kids walking down the street, and they had a dog that looked just like her, only six months younger, with a a ragged piece of, I don't even think it was rope, around her neck. I think it's a technology they have in Mexico now. And they offered to sell her to me for 300 pesos, which is uh, 15 bucks. That's some complicated math on that. I think that uh, that is the new technology in Mexico, is to replicate your dog six months earlier. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so... That's a, that's the local industry <laughs> sure. here and uh, mop heads. Um, so uh, <laughs> let's get into for a second here. So I missed. I haven't read any of the think pieces, like kind of deliberately, and also because I've been busy. I haven't read any of the think pieces about this. So apparently there has been this like backlash uh, having to do with a lot of things, like invasion of privacy and other stuff. So do you, do you guys you guys know more about that than I do. So what is this backlash that is happening about the podcast? Well, the big piece that I read, the the one, the biggest article I read, I guess the most pop, biggest, most popular article I read was one in the Guardian, about that it was just um, that there was no real story, that there was not a story there, that um, that they went, he went down, Brian Reed went down to investigate a murder, there was no murder, and then he just sort of took this, John B, took the, took John B's story, took John B's recordings and made it into Jeez, a story. Wait until they read a novel. And it was not really <laughs> and and there was not really a story there. It was just him sort of exposing John B for whatever he was. And that was not they felt like that was unethical because that was not really the story. According that he went According down to the high to, ethics that journalists have in practice every day. Mm. I think it's not even about ethics, it's just about definitions, about what, in journalism, what is a story, and in the artistic world and the creative world, what's a story, those are very different things, and I think that this draws more from the artistic definition of story than the journalistic definition, and that um, journalists are very, and rightly so, journalists are very anxious about... Um, mixing those two things up, um, or they should be anyway. And this story, I think I said before, works like a novel rather than working like a piece of strict journalism. And that's what I really liked about it because it's it's a different format. It's not supposed to work like a story in The Guardian. Right. And not like and Siri. I mean... I think they were, ba- you know, they were, it, it suffers a lot because you have, it's sort of seen as a, a third part of Serial, even though, but they, they tried to, I mean, they very much marketed it as something that was different from Serial, but they, it was, but still it suffered from, people thought it was like the third season of Serial, it was going to be another true crime you know, and in the, in the end, we were going to find out where John B.'s gold was. We were so they thought they were going to solve it, just like on Serial? 
Just like on cereal. <laughs> just like on cereal. Yeah, come to a conclusion. Yep. Just like on cereal. Just like on cereal. Uh, yeah. So I don't. I don't know. So like I said, I missed out on all the hype, and I also missed out on all the backlash. So it's not really something that I've processed at all. All I've really heard is from uh, uh, part of the, the start of this discussion was fr- friend of the show Andrew saying to me and David that he felt kind of ripped off that he was sold a murder mystery and instead just got um, a character study of someone he felt like he already knew. Uh, so. Well. Yeah, I think that it's partly about genre, about the fact that, like I said before, some people expect it to be journalism, but it worked more like creative nonfiction. And he expected noir, and instead he got Southern Gothic. But Gothic. Uh, yeah, Southern Gothic, too. which is <laughs> Southern Gothic. Do you remember the front line? Oh, sorry, go ahead. And, uh, well, I was going to say the other big controversy about it has to do with whether it was ethical to tell this story that John B. didn't tell himself. Like, after he was dead, more and more revelations come out about who he was and what he did. And uh, he sort of started the story, he was the impetus for the story, and in many ways he controlled it maybe more than the narrator wanted him to. And, of course, once he was dead, he didn't have control of the story. That you know of. And I think... The, the the what a lot of people did was they kept thinking of him as a living person maybe and that he should have agency somehow and that if he can't have agency in what's in the story and what's not that it's wrong to put it in there but it's also Tyler's story and Tyler tells it um, and Tyler reveals things that are much more embarrassing to him, I think, than they are to John. Well, and can P. I also interject? I think it's, it's Brian Reed's story, right? That he's been called in by this guy who says, I want to tell you something. Uh, is kind of insistent about it for years, I think, and then uh, kills himself after he's kind of enlisted this guy and telling his story, right? So in some ways, it's the narrator's story, too. It's not like, you know, that he's... A complete outside observer at this point. And he's also engaged him not just to tell he's the a friend, story, he's, but he's a friend. Yeah. Like, not a close friend, but close he enough. has an emotional connection. When uh, when he finds out that the that John B's killed himself, he breaks down, and I think a lot of listeners, I, I did, I didn't break down, I guess, but certainly tears came to my eyes. When I heard him reacting to John B's right, death. Right, and you feel bad for him, right? You feel bad for him, too, because he's now in this story. And these are people he know he knows who are suffering, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And I, I think he's uh, very rightly but very, you know, compellingly sympathetic towards, you know, Tyler's emotions and every, everyone involved's kind of feelings about To and his credit. I, yeah, well, right now on uh, Netflix, there's a show called, I think it's called, is it 12 Reasons Why? I think it's 13, and all I did was read the show description and immediately say, that sounds like the worst idea for a TV show I've ever heard in my life. And the basic premise of the show is somebody kills himself and they send out tapes that uh, the people involved in their lives and in their reasons for killing themselves have to listen to. And it sort of tells the story in flashback revealed through these tapes. And this idea that when you kill yourself, you get to have the last word and control the narrative seems completely 
misguided to me. Well, and dangerous. <laughs> I mean, exactly. I, I mean, um, I, you put it on Netflix. I hope you know. I'm a million teenagers have already watched it, but that uh, kind of frightens me. Yeah, my nephews have watched it, and my niece, oh, their mother, my great nephews have watched it, and their mom wanted me to talk to them about it actually because she said, um, you know, I don't want them to watch this sort of thing. This uh, this whole idea of romanticizing. And suicide as control. Yeah, it sounds um, when, like something that's already a bad idea that some teenagers have. You probably shouldn't help it out anymore. Not yeah. that I'm for like, you know, not that I'm a fuddy-duddy for censorship, but it's like it seems like at some point somebody proposing this show would say, you know, this seems like a bad idea, but I guess you wave enough money around and people stop caring. Well, and I think it sold. I think it was a novel that sold really well for so like a YA novel. And uh, I'm gonna write a I'm gonna write a YA novel about suicide. Great. <laughs> well, especially where suicide is. Well, I don't know how suicide it is. The hero. I, watched, I was mostly. I have to admit, mm. it wasn't my ethical concerns with it. I was just bored by the first episode. Uh, I work in uh, a high school, and so I get enough of yeah, yeah, yeah. feelings. To yeah, I think all teenage feelings as entertainment doesn't do much for me. No, I think all of yeah. us have had enough mildly suicidal teenagers to, to do us over for a while. Today. today. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so let's, before we wrap this up, I kind of want to talk about, and maybe this is just me forcing my own narrative on it, but like I said, I really got interested in making this new podcast to talk about all these think pieces in the kind of new political climate that we're in. But it seemed to be a little bit of that political climate is hanging over this show, if kind of unspoken. And I think we've touched on some parts of that. But one or two, one or two that really kind of stood out to me was one, I think, to, to betray my Marxist tendencies here, just like kind of this alienation that it seems to be is happening to all of the people in here that is maybe kind of the source of a lot of this consternation that is going on. These are people living in a... And this this is in Bibb County, which is a town that experiences a lot of poverty. And it's next to Hale County, which is the poorest county in Alabama, which is... If you can picture what the poorest county in Alabama looks like, that's, that's what it looks like. So I think it's this kind of alienation of people who don't really have the prospects for middle-class careers and don't really have, aren't really a part of society in a lot of ways and kind of what that looks like when there isn't a place for you, not just in society because maybe you like a different kind of music or maybe you're just kind of a little weird, but when there really just is not a spot for you in kind of the, the line of society. And I saw kind of that in it and also this kind of idea that I often want to push back on is that if you are liberal or leftist in the South, um, you are also in a bubble, like leftists all live in bubbles. Um, and it seems to me that this, to me, exposes how that just is, doesn't work when you generalize it out. So I'm just putting that one out there for you guys. Well, an awful lot of people in the so-called leftist bubble come from those small towns. Exactly. And they leave those small towns. John B. could easily have been a... Um, a liberal in any city in the U.S. if he had left his home, if he had left uh, his mom and the culture that he grew up in. And he, I think he could have crossed the of, county line and been in a blue county. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and he's, you know, and it's one of the things that's interesting that's kind of embodied in him is that he still has this sort of vestigial um, um, racism and yeah. provincialism 
And he's not... Um, he has very liberal politics, but those politics are kind of apart from the self that was formed culturally. Uh, and at the end, actually, it comes um, uh, when he's given his historical context, context in the last moments of the podcast. You can see kind of where that's coming from. But mm-hmm. he's... Um, um, you know, it's hard to be in those with a foot in both of those worlds. And um, uh, some people have this anxiety. I think the, the three of us, to one degree or another, have a kind of anxiety that is created by a tension between the cultural and racial attitudes of our grandparents or even parents and our own values and some people just don't can't really break away from that because the people who love you and the people who raise you are more important to you than the the mainstream the popular culture which has moved on and kind of left people in its wake and there's been so much cultural change in the last uh 50 years um uh you know 50 years ago there were still plenty of segregated uh like uh, officially segregated schools in the U.S. And um, uh, probably most of the signs were down from the water fountains and stuff, but they were just down. Uh, You know, uh, Martin Luther King was still alive 50 years ago. Well, no, not quite 50. Yeah, 50? That's a, that's, I think it's just been 50 Mm -hmm. years, hasn't it? 50. Yeah, you're right but uh, uh, regardless, the, um, you know, the culture has changed so much and uh, what the mainstream culture and the capital-driven culture and the media-driven culture is has changed so much that, of course, people are going to be left behind. And I'm not quite sure what the solution for that is uh, because you don't want to go back and validate and say, you know, it's perfectly valid um, to believe in uh, segregation and Confederate monuments and all of this other stuff, and so we're going to put some sort of approval on uh, these choices in this culture, but at the same time, who you are is who you are, and um, I'm not sure how much we can sort of exclude and punish people for being a part of the culture that embarrasses us now. Chad, do you have anything to add to that? No. My question would be, what do we, I mean, how... I don't know. How do we? How? How could those? How could they not be alienated? How could they not be alienated? I guess that would be my question. Well, right. I mean, everything that's been like done to them, done to them, and kind of they've been complicit in um, economically for however the last well in that part in that county for a hundred years for a long time has been working towards that right there's really really no way around it and kind of the temporary workaround there was was like enslaving people to create a bubble Mm -hmm. where there was labor right and then um having kind of like variations of like factory labor and field labor and things like that but in that region of the country like what you know there's not an easy solution to that uh which is why one one point I wanted to make was kind of um, of all the people that are familiar to me in this, and I've said this to you guys before. I think that the uh, the owner of the the KKK lumber who made a very brief vignette in it was uh, easily the most familiar to me. <laughs> and I was like, "Yep, 
I know that guy who pops in just to buy up the property, say he doesn't care about it, uh, say kind of flippantly that he's going to tear it down and also uh, laugh at, at pissing off northeastern liberals. Um, and and so the, kind of the, the, the point that I think people might miss listening to this without context is that like that guy is really different than the guys that are in the back of the tattoo bar. Uh, even though they're all going to be conflated as Southerners or part of Alabama or people from Bibb County, it's it's like those those people in the back of the tattoo parlor, like parlor, also probably think that guy's a complete asshole, right? And they might be conned into voting for Trump if they ever even bother to vote, but they're not like playing on the same team as the guy who owns the lumber store and all of the land around town, and it's just kind of like laughing at everyone else because he's getting away with it. Well, I would say the people in the tattoo parlor are probably very likely to talk about politics, but not that likely to vote. Um, But I think there's a kind of identity that some people in the middle class have with a kind of white ethnic identity politics where um, they sort of identify with what I would consider a lot of the worst of... um, white culture, and we can put that in quotes or whatever, but, um, uh, you know, they take on the, the suffering of um, the Rust Belt people who lost their jobs and stuff, even though they're working the job that they're trained for and whatever, but their white identity politics say, uh, the suffering of the Rust Belt unemployed is my suffering, uh, even though they wouldn't work on a factory floor for anything. Right, yeah. Right. You know, I think that's the case. And I think, you know, also what I've seen is kind of like it used to be. So my grandmother used to talk about how during the Depression it wasn't really as hard on them as it was on other people because her dad was a fisherman and they could fish and they could grow food and they could hunt. And so they had shortages, you know, of like plastic and buttons and stuff, but they could always eat. Right. And so I think like these kind of rural areas like that, these are people who've always kind of been able to do for themselves. uh, But, you know, now you're having private property is growing and growing the land that you're able to hunt on fish on all these things are starting to kind of shrink and shrink and shrink. uh, And and you're kind of just not able to live this kind of like I think often imagined free lifestyle. And so there hasn't really been given a leftist alternative presented to them for why that's happening. And so they're given things like, you know, Mexicans are taking your job, which I, you know, what job and, you know, what jobs are they in, in that region of Alabama? Um, you know, and so I think there's like no narrative given to them for why there are less kind of commons for you to be a part of. Yeah, I, I absolutely see that. And the uh, and I find that a lot of the people I know, I mean, admittedly, I wouldn't describe the way that I live as a bubble. That said, I have a tendency to associate with like-minded people, which I think is true of everybody. But the most of the rural people I know who are connected to agriculture and agricultural work, um, even my super conservative cousins who are farmers uh, up in Chad's part of the country, actually, um, when they talk about Mexicans, they can say racist things sometimes, but when they talk about work, 
They want Mexicans to work for them because they show up every day because of all of these sort of very positive sort of ethical qualities that they see Mexican people as having. Whereas if you're completely unassociated with that agricultural work or whatever, it's a lot easier to see them as um, uh, people who are stealing jobs rather than people who are getting the jobs because they're better at the jobs, you know, they're willing to do them, they're willing to do them cheaper, they're willing to show up every day even though it's exhausting labor and it, um, uh, you know, it's a desperation partly that drives them to do it, but um, um, yeah, I think the, the connection, or not the connection, the distance between actually living uh, the life and uh, imagining the life, and it's, it's sort of the country music problem, where people who listen to country music have this fictional version of themselves that is some sort of good old boy, mm-hmm. when they actually... Where they hang out down by the river and talk about girls and drink beer and water ski. Yeah. And, uh, and the, Shoot the shotgun. Pretty much their Shoot life. Shoot the shotgun. And, uh, um, and really sentimental tropes about... Um, uh, um, about patriotism and about uh, military NASCAR. service and about all these other things and people who have never served in the military in their lives would never serve in the military in their lives who get so outraged and um, uh, emotionally involved in things like um, uh, like when uh, Colin Kaepernick is that his name yeah, uh, uh, refuses to stand for the national anthem and they say that's disrespecting soldiers. It's like, well, the national anthem isn't about soldiers. I mean, it is literally, I guess, about war. But it's, uh, you know, they, they conflate their sense of patriotism to the military service that is mostly done by working class people, not done by middle class. Country uh, music stars. Country music stars. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who well, can't even drive a pontoon boat. Yeah. Because it's a fetish. It's a fetish. So before we wrap up, we're about at wrapping up time. I was going to say there's, there's, there's a dog on the loose. And I was also going to say that there's uh, three things in this that seemed the most uh, Southern to me were that uh, it all ended in an argument about property and it ended badly. Uh, there was a really awkward, uncomfortable funeral. Uh, and that um, it featured a guy who had a lot of hopes and desires, but in the end couldn't even write his own will, even though he frequently had lunch with his lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> well, Those I'm, were kind of the three for me. In, in a, a more positive way, I'd point out, like, uh, his last day where he goes out and they're waiting in the creek. and uh, That's very uh, nice. And, when he, and the fact that John B. can't swim and has him holding his hand. And they write their names <laughs> under the bridge and all that. I thought that was all very sweet and very Southern. Um, and the hedge maze seems like um, the sort of thing that, you know, there's a lot of peculiar expression that sees it's maybe its furthest extent of expression in somebody like uh, Howard Finster, uh, outsider artist yeah. and stuff like that. But there are so right. many people who are at least a little bit outsider artists like uh, uh, rural people get bored and they go out and do weird things to their houses and to their gardens and uh, <laughs> just you know my mom spent hours every day working in her flowers and uh, uh, you know all that seems very southern too to me the uh, those details of, of life that are not uh, horrifying 
<laughs> Chad, do you have any concluding thoughts? Um, I just thought yeah, I thought the the last. Well, I thought the Brian Reed going to find their name. Like going like at the end, like going to find where mm-hmm. they had put their uh, where Taylor and uh, John B had, and he found the bridge. Like he found the dirty bridge. That I've, right, that I've been the under with a carcass. <laughs> with a deer carcass and all the garbage. And, and he's like, well, maybe it didn't really happen. But then he found the actual, they found the clean bridge. It was the clean bridge that they had. The, <laughs> the clean Actually, bridge. Good they, judgment. If that had been a dead mule their, instead of a dead deer, uh, and that would have been <laughs> yeah. the most southern moment ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I will, I think we, we've kind of, all said it, but I think that I'd give Brian Reed a lot of credit for that kind of last bit that he wrote was was perfect uh, and was really good and uh, very affecting. I think. Yeah, agreed. Yes, agreed. Well, and the way he well, started we, it also yeah. the, with the um, um, uh, witness marks, witness marks. And the yeah. clocks was uh, brilliant too. Yeah, on second listening, that really held up. I didn't catch it the first time because I was just trying yes. to get into the story, but. Well, on that note, we'll conclude this first episode of Attica Shrugged. Uh, Thank you, David. Thank you, Chad. Thanks to everyone who listened, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks.